Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. When you get an opportunity, check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. Have you ever noticed how much time and money we spend trying to impress other people? I don't know if that, maybe that's a hard question because we think we're doing stuff for ourselves, but a lot of times I find myself thinking, well, I better show up at this event or do this thing or buy this or dress like this because I want somebody to like me or I want somebody to think that I'm cooler with it or I want somebody to think well of me. No, I don't want to drive that car to church. I want to drive the new car to church because I want people to see it. I know that seems silly. None of you ever struggle with that, I'm sure. But I do. So this message is for me today. What does it take, though, to impress God? What, what does it take to impress Him? I mean, should we even try to impress Him? Can we impress Him? And I think the answer is, yes, there's something that God does want us to do that truly honors Him. Now, not impress Him to try to get His favor, not trying to work for or earn something from Him, but, you know, that, that God would look at me and say that, yes, you're doing something that's right and good, and, 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 and that honors me. Well, what is it that honors God? What is it that really glorifies Him? What is it about my life that if He's my audience, He would really say, well done, you've been faithful in serving me? What is He looking for? What is it? Is, is it how often I go to church? Is it how much I give? Is it, is it you know, the, the amount of time I spend praying? Is it how many people I witness to? What, what is it that impresses God? Well, the answer to all that is found in two letters that we're going to read today, these love letters from Jesus that are found in the book of Revelation that Jesus has written through John, the, the apostle, the disciple, the follower of Jesus. And uh, John, he records this letter, these letters that Jesus has dictated, and they're letters to the churches. And these churches that he's writing to represent all the churches all over time, in all different places, all different situations. And Jesus has a message to every one of the, you know, no matter what kind of church you or I might be, we are, Jesus is writing to us through these letters. And I think for some of us, for people like me, he's going to challenge us about what is it that God's really looking for in your church? What is it that he's really looking for in your life when it comes to serving him? Is it a certain amount of production of spiritual success you know a church that's this large with this much money this kind of building or or is it that you have a great reputation in your community what what is it that god is looking for and the bottom line is just simply this is that what jesus is looking for is faithfulness our faithfulness our fidelity to him in fact fidelity fidelity to jesus brings vitality with jesus you know, in other words, if you really want to come across like you're spiritually alive, if you really want to experience the fullness of life in Christ, then be faithful to Him. That's the, from our side. That's what it means. Be, be fully devoted to Him. Have a steady commitment of obedience to Him. Be devoted to Him and committed to Him in, in a steady way. And the life of Christ will flow through you and you'll experience vitality like you've never seen before. The two letters that we're going to look at are, are letters... Uh, found in Revelation chapter 3. And it's a letter to a, a group of Christians that were in a little town called Sardis. And they were a church that had a reputation of being alive, but in reality they were dead. That was the shocking thing. 
They, they thought, hey, we're busy, we're active, we're doing all this stuff for God. We are a living on fire church. They had a reputation of being that way in the past. But right now when Jesus looks at them, nope, you're not alive, you're actually dead. And you need to wake up. You need to come back to life. You need to let my life flow through you. And I encourage you to become faithful to me. But then there's a letter written right after the letter to Sardis. It's the letter to the church at Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, actually named after two brothers that founded the city that they had, they had a love for each other, a great admiration for each other. So that's where that name came from, literally two brothers that loved one another as they founded this town. But the thing that's interesting to the letter of the church at Philadelphia, you can tell that Jesus is impressed with them. You can tell that, that they were really serving him. They were really faithful to him because there's nothing in the letter that indicates any kind of rebuke or correction from Jesus. All the other letters are something else with the exception of the letter to Smyrna in chapter two. Every other letter, there was some kind of rebuke. There was something they needed to correct. There was something they could do to get right with Christ except the letter to Philadelphia and the letter to Smyrna. And in Philadelphia, we see a pattern for what does it look like to be faithful to Jesus. Okay, Jesus calls us to be faithful to him no matter what. What does that look like? How does it act? And why should I do it? In fact, as we read these two letters, we're going to see a definition of faithfulness and we're going to see the source of faithfulness. Where does it come from? Because the source of how you and I can be faithful is actually very surprising. And I think you'll be very encouraged as we look at this today as well. So we have two letters. They're both love letters from Jesus because he cares about these Christians and he wants the best for them. They're love letters to us to challenge us about being faithful to Jesus. You might be right away saying, but what's in it for me? <laughs> Why do I need to be faithful? I mean, is, is Jesus just kind of hung up on himself? Is he just so self-conceited that he's demanding that we be loyal and committed to him? That's almost what it sounds like, and it's not that at all. Any healthy relationship requires commitment. Your marriage, your friendships, your relationship with your children or with your parents, it requires a, a commitment. It requires a dedication, a steadiness, a constancy, and relating to one another. And if you're not relating to each other, that relationship will die. It's not a, a matter of duty. It's a matter of delight. It's a matter of opportunity. It's a matter of privilege. It's a matter of being connected to one another. Not because you have to, but because you choose to. And Jesus is inviting us to hold up our end of the relationship and to be fully devoted to him as he has been fully devoted to us as well. And so I'd like you to take your Bible, please, and let's turn to the book of Revelation chapter 3. This is page 1029. Revelation chapter 3, page 1029. We're going to start reading at verse 1. Now, just a little, little reminder about when we read God's word in church. People died so that you and I could have this privilege. They died so that we would be able to have this written in our language so that it would be printed and freely distributed. And that just kind of reminds me, you know, thinking about Veterans Day, I'm not even necessarily thinking about the, the, the veterans of our country, but even the, the people all down through the centuries who have made huge sacrifices, burned at the stake, drowned in rivers, executed, dying in prison to preserve the word of God so that you and I would have the privilege to learn it and read it today. This is powerful and precious. So Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. 
And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God. So as we look at these two letters and we lay them down side by side, we notice one is alive and faithful and serving Christ and the other is dead. They have a, a reputation, a name that they are alive, but they're really not. And it's very clear that they've been worried about trying to impress other people rather than truly being devoted and committed to Christ and loyal to Him. And the challenge for us is to learn how do we go about actually being devoted and faithful to Christ and why do we do it? What's the, what's the motivation? What's the power source behind us so that we're able to be faithful to Christ no matter what? So let's just walk through these uh, letters and, and learn what we can here. Sardis was an interesting uh, city, uh, like all the other churches that are written to in the book of Revelation. But, but Sardis was a, was a town, it was a beautiful town, and it was located on a large plateau, and it was on the edge of the plateau, and it was like a, a place where the plateau stuck out, and it was, there was a cliff on three sides where the city was located. And if you wanted to enter into the city, you could either try climbing up the cliffs, which were extremely difficult, especially for an army to do, 
Or you would have to come up onto the plateau and attack through the front gates. And there were several times in Sardis' history where they thought, nobody, you know, nobody's going to be able to conquer us because we are in such a great, secure position. But actually, there were several times in Sardis' history they were so overconfident they were so convinced that they would be, be able to resist any, repel any kind of invasion because of their uh, ge geographical location that they actually were very lax about their security. They had a city wall, but there were times where the, the watchmen weren't watching carefully. And, and uh, there was one time where Cyrus the Great, the one who released the, the Jews from uh, captivity and, and uh, ancient uh, Persia and let them go back to uh, the promised land, uh, there was a time where he was marching with his armies and, and the, the king of the city of Sardis had attacked Cyrus and, and then retreated and he thought it was winter and thought that Cyrus would go back home and Cyrus actually snuck up upon the, the city with his army and he had one of his soldiers actually scale the cliff. He was able to climb the cliff very carefully and he was able to sneak into the city and unlock the city gates and they just marched right in through the front door and conquered the city. And if that wasn't bad enough, about 300 years later, the same thing happened with another army, another general, and the same lax security. People thinking that they could resist an invasion because of the position, but actually they were extremely vulnerable. With that history of, of laxity and, and not being on guard and not being vigilant, that's why this message to Sardis really resonated with the people living there. Because these were Christians who said, they were Christians in name. They were Christians who said that, yes, we're loyal to Jesus. And, and there was probably even a time when the church at Sardis was vibrant and on fire. And they really were alive spiritually. But now, at this moment, they were actually dead. They were making compromises. They were, they were giving in and, and they were not being faithful to Jesus. And so when Jesus looks at them, he says, I know your works. You have a name, literally. A reputation, but it's literally the word name. You're named. You call yourself, we're alive. We're a living church. We're a living church. Living, instead of Littlestown Chapel, we'll just say, we're little, you know, living chapel. That's us. We're alive. And yet, really, Jesus says, I know. I can feel your pulse. I've done an EKG on you. You're dead. You flatlined. You're spiritually not alive. And yet you have this name. You call yourself alive. But really, you are dead. And like a, a doctor in the emergency room and the nurses and the nursing staff there, the, he rushes to, to Sardis and says, you need to do something. We, we need to jumpstart your heart. We need to get you going. Two years ago when I had that uh, episode of ventricular tachycardia, they had to shock my heart and get it back into rhythm. I don't remember anything about it. I asked them when they were going to do it, and they laughed at me and said, we've already done it. They had knocked me out. But it was just something that, that they had to do that to get the heart back in rhythm, or it I would have died. Jesus is saying, there's something you've got to do and it's shocking and you need to get your heart back in rhythm. And so that's why he says, you need to wake up. You need to wake up and get alive again. You need to strengthen what remains. There's still a little bit of spiritual life in you. You have a relationship with me, but it's dying. And we're going to need to shock it and jolt it back into rhythm so that you can be alive and gain your strength. Like you've got to, you've got to strengthen what remains. And then he says, not only that, but you, you've got to do this because I've not found your works complete. 
There's a spiritual immaturity and incompleteness about your life. And you're probably saying, well, what works is he talking about? I thought we're saved by faith, not by works. By grace, not by works. And that's correct. But after we're saved by grace, through faith in Christ, through the works that he did, he calls us to work, to serve him, to live a life that honors him. That wasn't happening. They were incomplete. They were falling short. And they needed to fill it up. And so he says, you need to do this. And in verse 3, he explains how. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it. Keep it. And repent. And I think the repent, making that spiritual U-turn and coming back to God, changing course and coming back to God. I think that's what he's been talking about of, of you know, wake up and strengthen what remains and you've, what you've heard, remember what you've heard, what you've learned from, from Paul's teaching, what you've learned from Peter and John and other people that were there, the other evangelists that would have come through, the apostles that would have come through, the Christians that taught you God's word, what your pastor has said and what you've taught each other. Remember that, pay attention to that. But the big thing is keep it. Keep on keeping it. Keep on obeying it. The word keep there literally is the idea of guarding. Guarding something. Understanding that what God is calling us to do in this book is so important that I need to watch it and follow it and keep it as carefully as I would guard the most precious possession I have, my family. Or, or, or you know, like a bank protecting the assets that have been invested there, deposited there. Or, or maybe, you know, the guns that you've collected or the, the jewelry that you've collected and you put it in a safe and you lock it and there's an alarm system. To have that same kind of zeal and making sure that those things are safe. To make sure that I'm doing my very best by the help of God through His grace to do what He says in His Word to guard my life in such a way that I'm following what He calls me to do. Keep it. And for most of us, there's a major issue in the area of repentance where, no, we've been going our own way, we've been living our life our own way, and no, we've got to make that U-turn and come back to Him, that repentance. So that indeed, we can do and obey what He says and we can be faithful to Him. He says, if you don't wake up, if you don't wake up and start obeying me, if you don't do this, if you don't do this, I'm going to come like a thief. You see, the thing is, is Jesus tells the people of Sardis, I'm coming back, and he tells the people of Philadelphia, I'm coming back, and the one you should be very afraid I'm coming back, and the other is, I'm coming back, and I want to encourage you, keep going, don't give up, and it's a cheerful thing. It's actually a blessing. It's a, it's a reminder that he's coming, and it's a blessing, but here it's a, it's a warning. It's almost a threat. I'm coming back, and if you don't wake up, if you don't snap to it and get back in line with me and become faithful to me and start having that steady obedience to me, if you don't do that, I'm going to come like a thief and I'm going to take everything you've got. And you'll have nothing. You'll lose it all because you've rejected me. He's warning them to wake up. And you will not know, you will never ever figure out, you'll never ever know what hour I'll come against you. 
Now, he offers the people of Sardis a little encouragement because he says, now look, not everybody in your church is this way. There are some people in your church, it says in verse 4, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white because they're worthy. They're worthy because they've been obeying Jesus. They've been trusting Him and following Him and relying on His grace and power in order to do what He calls us to do. So they have this faithful relationship. They have this steady, committed relationship with Jesus, this fidelity to Jesus. And there's a spiritual vitality in their life. There's fruit in their life. There's a growing love and devotion to Jesus because of their commitment to Him and their faithfulness to Him. And he says, I want you to know that there are some people in your church that get what I'm talking about. And they've remained faithful to me. I'm begging the rest of you. I'm coming quickly. I'm coming like a thief to catch you off guard. But you don't have to be caught off guard if you just would follow the example of these people in your church that are devoted to me. You see, he's making it very clear that faithfulness does not depend on your reputation. When we talk about faithfulness to Christ, we're not talking about what do other people think of you or what you think of yourself. That's not, your, that's not faithfulness. Faithfulness is, is there a steady devotion and obedience to Jesus in all circumstances? Am I consistently choosing to practice what He's called me to do? Am I guarding the Word of God by putting it into action in my life and obeying Him? That's faithfulness. That steady, committed obedience to Him. That persevering in obedience. That's what we're called to do. Not just obeying Him when it's convenient. Not just obeying it when other people are watching. Not just obeying when we want something from Him. Oh, I better get my act together because I'm going to pray and ask for a favor. No, it's, there's a steady obedience even when nobody else is watching. Even when there's nothing in it for you or me but a devotion to Him, a commitment to Him, an obedience to Him, no matter what. That's what we're called to do. You see, the, the, the message, the consistent message of the letters, the seven letters to the seven churches, the consistent message is just simply, you know, I'm coming back, you need to put me first and live like it. So when we looked at the two letters to Pergamum and Thyatira, it was the issue of idolatry. You, you know, I've got to be first and foremost in your life. It's, it's all or nothing with me. You've got to be devoted to me. And, and the letters, the first two letters, we looked at the letters to Ephesus and the letter to, to uh, Smyrna, the, the message was, you've got to love me more than anything else, which is very similar to all or nothing, which is very similar to the idea of being faithfully devoted to Jesus and fully committed to him. It's all about putting Jesus first in everything that you do. That's how you get ready for, for Jesus when he comes back. And so the the challenge here for the people of Sardis, the challenge for us is don't be like those ancestors of yours that weren't guarding their city when the enemy attacked and they thought they were safe and secure and they were so self-confident and they were so full of themselves that when the enemy attacked, they were completely caught off guard. I'm coming back like a thief and you will be completely caught off guard unless you're fully devoted to me. But thankfully, in your church, there are some people who are fully devoted to me and they're going to walk with me in these brilliant white robes because they're worthy. They have lived in full devotion with me. And when he talks about them walking about with him in white, it's the idea of a victory parade. 
You know, in our country's history, when, when our soldiers and sailors and airmen and marines have come back victorious from battle at the end of World War II and other conflicts like that, they would, they would have a parade and everybody would cheer and they would shout and there they were in their dress blues and their dress greens and they're just marching in battle and they're so excited and we're all so happy and so thrilled and there they are, you know, just every man, every woman that's, that's been in combat and been victorious, we honor them and we celebrate them and in Jesus's royal army, so to speak, all the church and all the Christians that are faithful to him they're dressed in white and they march in that victory parade and it's a it's a march of triumph because they're sharing the victory that they have in Christ that's why they're faithful to him because of Jesus's faithfulness to them he's sharing that victory and so when you and I choose to be fully devoted to Jesus. And when we're committed with that steady obedience to Him, we share His victory in daily life. And we bring glory and honor to His name and we share that glory and honor ourselves. In verse 5, he says, The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and I will never blot His name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We'll come back to this in a minute. But I want you to see how faithful Jesus is to the one who overcomes. To the one who has that steady obedience with Jesus. How faithful the Lord is to him. In the message to the, the letter to the church at Philadelphia, Remember when it says to the angel of the church in each of these letters, it's talking about the pastor, the leaders of the church. Here, the, Jesus says, these are the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one's shut, who shuts and no one's opens. All of these descriptions of Jesus at the opening of the letters, like in, in verse 1, where it says the, the words of him who has the seven stars, the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Jesus is talking about his authority and talking about being in charge of the churches, the leaders of the churches, the seven stars we read in chapter one being the seven leaders of the churches as well. And, and having the seven spirits of God, just a, a very um, amplified description of the nature and character and work of the Holy Spirit found in the book of Isaiah. He's talking about the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God is upon me and I have these leaders in my hands. And, and here he says, I've got the key of David. And, and what is that? The key of David, we read about that in the book of Isaiah chapter 22 in the Old Testament. And it's around verse 20, 21, and following down through verse 25 or so. There's a guy named Eliakim. It's during a time of siege in ancient Israel, the city of Jerusalem. And, and God says, I'm going to put Eliakim in charge, and I'm going to give him the key of David. And in those days, the keys were not the little thing that you've got in your little pocket that will unlock a little door, you know, uh, lock set or something like that, a deadbolt. But it was actually a, a, a bigger structure, a big, heavier wooden or metal thing. And it would be stuck into a slot and you would have to turn this big thing. And you could just imagine having a, a key ring with those on. You're kind of walking around like this, I'm sure. But it was a big, heavy thing. It was almost more of a ceremonial thing that would open the door as well. 
And the idea of, of Jesus claiming to have the key of David, he said it's like the key that was given to Eliakim that opened the palace and opened the treasury and opened the resources of the kingdom. This key was a symbol of his authority and his right to rule and the fact that he has authority and access to everything in, in the kingdom of Judah. Everything. It all belongs to him. Jesus comes on the scene and he says, you know what? I'm the son of David, I've got the key of David. I've got the authority of King David. I've got the authority of his kingdom. And I'm letting you know that as I write this letter, I'm the one who has the right and authority and responsibility to tell you the things that I'm about to tell you. And so when he writes to Philadelphia, this is what he says, I know your works. And then he shifts gears immediately. He says, I know what you've been doing. I know how you've been acting, how you talk, what you've, been, what you've been serving, how you've been doing. I know your works. Behold, and he says this three times in a row here in verses seven, uh, rather verses eight and nine. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know you have but little power, yet you've kept my word and have de- not denied my name. You see, this is the difference between Philadelphia and Sardis as these two churches. Sardis had a reputation, a name that they were alive, but they were really dead. Philadelphia knows we're weak, we're small, but we've been faithful. And they're not boasting or claiming that for themselves. Jesus is saying that you've kept my word and you've not denied my name. You've guarded my word. You've done what I've asked you to do. The very thing that I told the people in Sardis to do, that they should keep the word. I gave them that command as part of that repenting and coming back to me. You've been doing that. You've been keeping my word. You've been obeying me. You've had this steady obedience in trusting me and following me. And you know what? Because of that, what I've done, I've put in front of you an open door. He has the key. He has a key that he can unlock it and swing it open. And there it is, the keys to the kingdom of God. I put in front of you an open door. Now, what is this open door? There's basically two ideas, I'll say, uh, as I've heard people discuss, discuss this and Bible teachers try to explain it. And I need to tell you, I'm not exactly sure, but this is what makes the most sense to me. I think it's the idea of the kingdom of heaven, that we've been given access to the kingdom of heaven. Not just that we get to go to heaven someday, but that we have the resources, the privileges, the opportunities, all of that that's involved in having the kingdom of heaven at our disposal to do the work that God has called us to do. Now there's some teachers who say, well no, it's an open door because all throughout the Bible you see an open door, it's an opportunity to be an evangelist, an opportunity to be a witness, and it can be that, it might be that. But I think the context here, it's the kingdom. You have little strength. You have little resources, and yet you've been faithful. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. You haven't gone chicken and run away when when the pressure was on. You've stayed true to me, and you've kept obeying my word. You weren't trying to impress other people. You were trying to honor me. Even though your strength is so small, I've put in front of you an open door. The open door to the treasury of heaven, the open door to the resources and power of the kingdom of God, the open door, the promise of one day living with me forever in my eternal kingdom. 
That's what I've set there in front of you. And you know what he says? Remember how he said it in the beginning? When I open a door, no one can shut it. When I shut a door and lock it, no one can open it. No one can override me and shut that door and deny those privileges and resources from you. No one can take them away from you. I've put before you an open door. Notice what else he says here. Again, he says, behold, I want you to sit up and look and notice this. Behold, I will take those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. This is such a beautiful thing. You'll remember, perhaps, in chapter 2 when we read the letter that Jesus wrote to the church of uh, Smyrna. It was a persecuted church and there was the synagogue of Satan in that community. People who claimed that they were Jews, they really weren't, and they attacked the Christians. They were kicking the Christians out of the synagogue. They were oppressing and persecuting the Christians. And the, the Christians at the church in Smyrna were called by Jesus, hold on, stay faithful, keep loving me first, even. This even though there's this opposition, keep loving me first. Here in Philadelphia, they're, they're faced with the same threat. That there are people who say that they're the people of God, that they're the people of Israel, the, the true Jews, but really they're not because they've rejected the Messiah, Jesus, who's the king of the Jews. They've rejected him. They've rejected his followers. They've rejected the promises of the Old Testament. The Hebrew Scriptures, they've rejected the plan that God revealed there that the Gentiles would be brought in as well through the witness of the Jewish people. They've rejected all of that. And because they've rejected all of that, they're persecuting the Christians who are claiming that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and they're persecuting the Christians. And he says, I know that there's this synagogue of Satan. They claim to be Jews, but they're really liars. They're not. They're false Jews. They're not true Jews. But I want you to know something, that just as I set in front of you an open door with access and opportunity and resources from my kingdom, in the same way I'm going to take those enemies of yours and I'm going to make them come and they will bow down in front of you. Not to worship you, not to worship you, but to show that I have truly loved you. I am vindicating you. I'm going to conquer your enemies and I'm going to put them in a place where they submit and yield to you and recognize that I indeed have loved you. Have you ever thought about that, how much God loves you? We say that all the time. Jesus loves me this, I know, right? We say that all the time. But has that really gripped you? I have loved you. He's loved us with an everlasting love. Oh, how magnificent, how glorious is the Father's love for us that we should be called the children of God and that is what we are. It really is. Jesus is saying here, that's going, there's going to be a time when you'll be vindicated. Let me show you two things from these opening verses, verses 8 and 9. Two things that are not the source of faithfulness. You and I think that if my strength was just greater, then I would be able to be faithful. If I was just stronger spiritually, I could be more faithful. If I had more resources, if I had a greater opportunity, then, then I could be faithful. And Jesus wants us to understand that it doesn't depend on your strength. That's not what makes us faithful. And it also doesn't depend on your circumstances, your situation that you're in. 
It doesn't depend on that either because they were being faithful even though they were persecuted. Here's this little tiny church in this big city, maybe you know, 50, 60, 100,000 people living in this town. And there's this little, you know, maybe, maybe a, a dozen, two dozen, three dozen Christians in this whole city and there's, there's thousands of Jewish people. And, and, and big synagogues and complexes there. And, and here's, here's this, little, this little group of Christians. And it's, it's not their size, and it's not their strength, and it's not their situation because they were constantly being persecuted and harassed and kicked out and expelled from the synagogue and, and persecuted by these, these people who said they were Jews, but they really weren't. None of those things have to do with your faithfulness and my faithfulness. You can't say, well, I would be faithful. I would obey Jesus if it just were easier. I would obey Jesus if I were just stronger. I would obey Jesus if my circumstances were just better. My situation was more comfortable. Then I would obey Jesus. It's too hard right now to really do his will. There's too much pressure. Jesus is saying, no, they were faithful to me no matter what. What is the source of our faithfulness? The source of our faithfulness is not our strength and it's not our situation. It's our Savior. He's the secret of our strength, our Savior. You see, everything in this passage, in both of these letters, to Sardis and Philadelphia, the message keeps coming back. Look at what I'm doing for you. This is why you can be faithful. You see, Jesus has been faithful to us so we can be faithful to Him. Let me say that again. Jesus has been faithful to us so we can be faithful to Him. Jesus obeyed His Father and went to the cross, died in our place, rose from the dead, so now we can give our lives in service to Him. We can pay that price because He's already paid the ultimate price to set us free, to gift us with His kingdom, to give us all that we need. Think about all that He's doing here. In this passage, what does he do? He gives his children access. He gives them that open door, the kingdom. All the resources of the kingdom, all the privileges and blessings of being a child of God in the family of God as a member of the kingdom of God. All those resources he's made at our our disposal. So when he calls us to serve him in another culture, he gives us the grace to bear up with that, the, the financial resources to go. He gives us the strength and the courage to endure the wisdom how to handle the difficult circumstances and situations. When we're tempted, we can resist because He faithfully endured temptation for us. He's given us these resources to serve Him. On top of this access, He gives us this vindication that we've already talked about. When other people are accusing us and condemning us, when we even condemn and accuse and and ridicule ourselves, I think we probably, I have more trouble with that than I do other people. Attacking and accusing myself, that voice I hear, maybe you hear it too inside yourself, you're not good enough. You blew it. You failed. Those accusations like that, that we hear in our heads or that we hear from other people. Maybe that's how our parents talk to us. Maybe that's what our kids say to us. Maybe that's what your friends are saying, your spouse is saying. Maybe your boss is constantly criticizing and condemning. When we have those accusations, go back and remember the fact that those who are faithful to Jesus, they walk with him in white. They walk in that victory parade. They're vindicated. I'll make them come and bow down before you. In verse 10, he goes even further. He says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, 
There's not just vindication now, but there'll be vindication in the future. I will keep you. I will guard you. Same word as as they have obeyed Jesus and guarded His word. Jesus is going to guard them and keep them from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Literally the whole inhabited earth. Every person, every human being on the face of the earth is going to go through this trial. This time of testing that He's talking about. It will try those who dwell upon the earth. I think He's talking about the great tribulation I'm going to rescue you and scholars debate is he saying is he going to rescue them by pulling them out so they don't go in or is he going to rescue them by keeping them safe as they go through that they'll never suffer the wrath of of God through that experience and we'll come back to that later in Revelation But however you look at it, He sustains us, He vindicates us, He protects us, He delivers us in the hour of trial. Jesus showed His faithfulness to you by claiming the authority that the Father gave to Him to give you access to His kingdom. All the resources, the divine operating assets of the kingdom of God have been given to you because of Jesus having the authority. All authority has been given to Him in heaven and earth. Jesus was vindicated by his own resurrection. When the Father raised him from the dead, the work that he had accomplished on the cross, the life that he'd lived on this earth, it was all stamped with that gold seal of approval, so to speak. The Father saying, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. I am well pleased with him. The ultimate proof of that was not just the voice from heaven that everybody heard, but it was that day that Jesus rose from the dead and he's back alive. Vindicated. The vindicated one vindicates his people. He declares them innocent, fully loved, fully approved, fully accepted. That's what verses 9 and 10 are showing us there. Christ has given us that. How faithful he's been to us that He would vindicate us even when everybody else accuses us. We've been declared victorious in His sight. But He gives a warning in verse 11, and He says this, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. These are words of encouragement to the church of Philadelphia. Almost the same words to Sardis, but there it came across like a threat. I'm coming like a thief. (laughs) I'm going to take... Your stuff, you should be awake and alert. But here to the words of Philadelphia, he says, just keep hanging on. Just keep doing what you're doing. Just keep keeping my word. Just keep obeying me. Keep being faithful. Keep at it. I'm the one who's been faithful to you so you can be faithful to me. I've given you access and I've given you vindication. And on top of all of that, I'm giving you security. No one can take any of this away from you ever. Look what he says. Verse 12. The one who conquers, the one who really is faithful and steadfast, the one who believes me and trusts me and it shows up in his faithful living for me, her faithful living for me, that person, notice what he says. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. This was significant. If geography was important for 
for Sardis, you know, the, the position there with the cliffs on three sides underneath them. Geology was the issue with Philadelphia because they, they lived on a plain where there were a lot of fault lines. There were often earthquakes where they were at. In fact, there was a very devastating earthquake in AD 17. It actually destroyed much of Sardis and it rattled most of Philadelphia. In fact, it was so bad in Philadelphia in Philadelphia, many of the people actually left the city and they lived outside the city because they didn't want any of the buildings to fall down on top of them. And so they just camped out on the hillside and built their own houses out there in the middle, middle of the fields. And so when Jesus says to them, you know what, if you're faithful to me, if you're steadfast in your obedience to me, as you do that, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. And you'll never go out. You'll never have to evacuate because there's an earthquake shaking it and threatening to knock it down. You'll be steady, safe, and secure in my temple, worshiping me, leading others in worship of me. You'll be there in my presence. And you'll never have to leave or flee. You'll never have to do that because you'll be securely anchored in my temple. Not only that, but there's this security, not just of being placed in the temple of God, but there's this new identity because he says this, I'm going to write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and I'm going to write on him my new name. I mean, you get these new names. So God's name, you know, the name of new Jerusalem, if found, please return to sender, you know, this new Jerusalem right there. And then my own name, I'm going to write on him or her. This, this new identity, you belong to me. You don't belong to anybody else. You don't belong to yourself. You don't belong to your country. You don't belong to your family. You don't belong to anything else. You belong to me. I'm yours and you're mine. You see that new Jerusalem, that's the temple of God. That's the new temple. There's no temple in new Jerusalem because the whole city is a temple. I'm going to put you there as that pillar. You're anchored safe and secure there. And not only that, but I'm giving you a new identity. I'm giving you my father's name. I'm giving you the name of the city. I'm giving you my own new name on you. And when you take that, those, those gifts, that security, that new identity, and you look back at the end of, of um, the letter to Sardis in verse 5 there, he says, the one who conquers there, he will be clothed with white garments. Remember, the, the, the victory, the victorious conquerors marching on parade at the end of a battle that they've won. And they'll be wearing those white robes. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Your name will be put on the census rolls of heaven. And it will never be erased. It's written there in permanent ink that no one can scratch out or blot out or cover up. You're safe and secure on the rolls of heaven. And on, not only that, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And the picture that I see, you could just, can you imagine this? Can you imagine being in a place like Beaver Stadium or, or, or a huge stadium where there's hundreds, hundreds of seats, hundreds of thousands of seats? Can you just imagine it? the stadium being full and, and the field, the infield is all filled and right there at the very center, there's this little opening, and there's Jesus standing there with you. This one belongs to me. This one is my child. This one has trusted in me. This one belongs to my God. This one is part of our kingdom and our family. He has not denied me. 
I will never deny him. This one is mine. It's like a judge declaring us innocent, acquitted, fully accepted and fully approved in front of all the angels and all the other people that are watching in that scene. He's declaring that to be true. What I'm trying to say to you is that the reason why we're faithful to Jesus is because He has been faithful to us. And He shows that fidelity to us by keeping us secure. I know there are Christians who teach that you can lose your salvation, but I look at this passage and I say, I don't see how this can ever be that you could lose your salvation because it all depends on Jesus. He did the work for dying for us on the cross. In fact, He gave up His security, allowing Himself to be taken and nailed and rejected on that cross so that we would never be rejected, so that we would always be accepted and always loved and always approved by God the Father. And because Jesus has been so faithful to us in giving us this security and giving us this vindication and giving us access to the resources of heaven, because He's been so faithful to us that way, we can be faithful to Him. We can have that steady obedience relying upon Him no matter how difficult the circumstances, no matter the situation, and no matter how little our strength may be, His strength is greater. And we can rely on Him. So be faithful. Have that steady obedience. Doing what Christ has called us to do no matter what. You and I can be faithful like that because Jesus is so faithful to us and giving us everything we need to do His will. I hope you're encouraged by this. I found great hope and great encouragement reading this passage when I thought about all that Christ has done. And why it's such a great privilege and joy to be able to be faithful to Him by His grace. I can do it because Christ does it through me. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, I thank You that Your steadfast love does endure forever. That Your faithfulness reaches to the highest heavens. That You're always there. You're always faithful no matter what. And I pray that we could see that we would be that devoted and that faithful to you because of your faithfulness to us. I pray that, Father, we would welcome and accept that faithfulness that you've shown us by trusting in Christ. And I would ask that you would help us today, those of us that are enduring temptations, those of us who are struggling with doubts, those of us who are wondering what we should be doing and your will, if we have a sense of what we should do, then Lord, help us do it. And be faithful to you because of the grace that you've given to us. We praise you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Help us live lives that are faithful to you and one another. And we pray this in Jesus' name, the faithful one. Amen.